All right, Psalm 127. Psalm 127. It's the last Sunday of the year. I always try to pick a message. This is actually the third time I preached close to New Year's at Grace, and so I, I try to pick a message that really has some theme that applies to the new year. Bill Brandenstein and I did not consult on the order of service, but he picked the same theme I did, which is the sovereignty of God. That's what this whole psalm is all about. <clears throat> Several years ago, in a Sunday morning service here at Grace, I preached on the first two verses of this psalm, and today I want to come back and have a broader look at the entire psalm. It's a totally different sermon, uh, Psalm 127. It's only five verses long, so it's short. And in fact, I looked it up. I keep a record of these things. It was 15 years ago that I preached on the first two verses, so I don't expect you to remember that sermon. I don't remember it. But I remember the text, and it's a familiar one. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain, it is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late, O you who eat the bread of painful labors, for in this manner he gives sleep to his beloved. And without re-preaching that sermon from 15 years ago, here's the gist of what those two opening verses say. They give us two truths that seem like opposites, but in reality they're twins. Because on the one hand, this is a straightforward declaration about the sovereignty of God and the necessity of God's grace to empower anything good that we would ever do. His grace is necessary in every endeavor. Nothing we ever do can truly prosper without God's involvement. And when we prosper, He deserves all of the credit and all of the glory for it. And that, of course, is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. We have nothing to boast about. 1 Corinthians one twenty nine. no flesh can boast before God. And as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he gets all the credit for everything good. Jeremiah 9.23, thus says Yahweh, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Isaiah 10.15, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to magnify itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a rod wielding those who lift it, or like a staff lifting him who is not wood. And Romans 3.27, boasting is excluded by the law of faith. That's one of the great lessons of the truth that God is sovereign over all things. If God is sovereign, then human boasting is excluded. And the other lesson of those two verses is that divine sovereignty does not nullify human responsibility. Builders and security guards are useless unless God himself causes their work to prosper, but That truth doesn't eliminate the need for laborers and lookouts. God gives us work to do, and Scripture says the laborer is worthy of his hire. It also says that if anyone is not willing to work, neither should he eat. So God's sovereignty and human responsibility are the twin truths in those first two verses. God's absolute sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility, and 
That's what we focused on when we looked at those two verses 15 years ago. This time, I want to take a more bird's-eye view of the psalm, because the central lesson of this psalm is a very practical truth about faith and the goodness of our sovereign God. This is a truth that lies at the very heart of the gospel. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, from the hand of a good and gracious and generous God. So it's sheer folly to trust in our own labors or to look at our own works while neglecting to trust God and praise Him, as if we could gain what we need in life and eternity through our own efforts. And the corresponding truth is this, if all of your expectations and all of your trust and all of your hopes for prosperity are invested in your own skill and hard work, then you are in a truly hopeless condition, whether you realize it or not. And so the psalm is a series of arguments that make that point inescapable. No matter how hard and how skillfully you work, you cannot guarantee your own prosperity in this life, much less can you earn a place of blessing in eternity. You can't do it through your own works, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. And that, of course, is Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And it's essentially the same truth that's highlighted in this psalm. Ephesians 2 is speaking specifically about how we are saved from the guilt and condemnation of our sin. Psalm 127 applies that same principle to everyday life and to family life in particular. And it teaches us that everything we get that is good is God's doing, Everything we try to do for ourselves apart from God's grace is doomed to failure. And so here's the central lesson of this psalm. All true success depends on the Lord's blessing. Don't put your trust in yourself and your own works. Or to borrow a saying from John the Baptist, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. There's only one source of good things, and that's God himself. That, by the way, is John 3.27. If God is truly the sovereign giver of every good and perfect gift, then it is sheer folly to hope for any kind of true and lasting success or blessing or worthwhile achievement apart from trust in God. And if God is not the center and the focus of your trust, you can work as hard as you like, you can accumulate as much as you can, but without God, All of it is wasted effort. No matter how skilled you are, no matter how hard you work, eventually you will discover that if God is your portion, you really have, if God is not your portion, you really have nothing. And on the other hand, Psalm 37, verse 4 delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh, trust in him, and he will do it. So, If he is what you delight in and desire the most, your cup will always be full to overflowing. Apart from God, you can never have true and eternal success, but he gives his blessings freely and abundantly to those who trust in him. And the psalmist proposes a series of proofs that show the wisdom of this worldview. So here's the complete psalm, Psalm 127. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. I'll read even the inscription because it's part of the text. Psalm 127. 
a song of ascents, of Solomon. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late, O you who eat the bread of painful labors. For in this manner he gives sleep to his beloved. Behold, children are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children in one's, children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with enemies in the gate. Now, at first glance, you might not see how the second half of that psalm connects with those two first, ver- those first two verses. What, what does a quiver of children have to do with the builder of a house or the watchman on the city walls? But those last three verses, at first glance, look like maybe they're a separate thought, like these are two sets of Proverbs that jump from one subject to another without any kind of connection or transition. But I'm going to show you that the logic here is perfect, and the entire psalm underscores the one point that we begin to see in those first two verses. And here's how it goes. Follow the logic of the argument, and, and I'll come back to this in more detail later, but here's a summary. The psalmist is saying that nothing can be blessed or prosperous apart from God, because He is the sovereign giver of every good and perfect gift. And in other words, the best things we enjoy in this life are not the works of our own hands, but they are gifts that come to us from above. And God is not only sovereign, He's also good and gracious and generous, especially towards those who acknowledge Him and trust Him. He gives His blessings freely and abundantly, and faithfulness requires that we acknowledge that in everything we do. And so that's the key idea of this psalm. Everything truly good in life is a gracious gift that God provides, and what better proof of that is there than children? They are fearfully and wonderfully made, and not by our effort or cleverness. They aren't the result of labor or diligence. Verse 3, behold, children are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's a reward, not a wage that we earn. But it's a gracious gift from God, and that goes right back to the central message of the psalm, and it's an irrefutable proof of the truth that's taught throughout the psalm. You couldn't build a child by any amount of toil or careful design, even if you gave your entire life to the project, you couldn't build a child of your own. You know that the story of Pinocchio is pure fiction, right? And of all the tangible blessings in this life, children are by far the most rewarding and most profitable and the most delightful gift God gives. They are the richest of all possible common grace blessings, other than the grace that redeems us from our sin and the the inexpressible gift of God's own Son. There is no greater gift from God to humanity than our children. And we know, or we ought to know, by the very nature of the thing itself, that children are not the fruit of our labors. They're not the works of our own hands. They are 
amazing and intricately designed gifts from the very hand of God. They are His workmanship, not ours. And in that regard, children then serve as an object lesson of every blessing that we enjoy in this life, from our daily bread to the very air we breathe. And and this certainly includes whatever success or wealth you might enjoy. All of life's blessings are gifts to be thankful for. They are not personal achievements to boast about. And, and, that, and every verse in this psalm underscores that truth. Now, in the first two verses of the psalm, we have already met three kinds of people who are easily distracted by earthly cares and who therefore tend to lose sight of the truth in this psalm. They, they, there's the workman, verse 1, who's building a house. Then there's the watchman at the end of verse 1 who is guarding a city. And then there is the worrier, verse 2, who gets up early and stays up late, eating the bread of painful or anxious labors. So you have the workman, the watchman, and the worrier. And I want to consider each of those three characters one at a time this morning. And I think you'll see that in each case... The same point is being made, namely that, yes, this life is full of hard labor and deadly danger and nagging worries, and without God, all the energy we expend trying to carry the burden of that is ultimately ineffectual and utterly worthless. But if we simply trust the Lord, He will make our yoke easy and our burden light, and that point is illustrated with each of these three characters So let's look at them one at a time. We start with the workman. The workman is building a house, and that does require a lot of labor, but we're reminded here that if God himself is not engaged in the building of the house, the entire project is totally worthless, pointless. It's without any really lasting benefit. All the skill and all the diligence in the world cannot bring real success to any building project so it's, it's good to be skilled, and it's right to be diligent, but it is wrong to trust in those things for ultimate success. Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18 says, "'Beware, lest you say in your heart, "'My power and the might of my hand made me this wealth. "'But you shall remember Yahweh your God, "'for it is He who gives you the power to make wealth.'" In other words, God wants us to acknowledge Him in anything we achieve and every good thing we enjoy. All blessings, every endeavor of life, the blessings that come to us come from Him, and therefore lasting, meaningful prosperity is impossible apart from Him. That's true even in the relatively insignificant features of everyday life, which is why We are commanded in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And also 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And all of that is saying don't ever lose sight of who gives you the blessings you enjoy and don't ever become so absorbed in the work that you neglect the one whom you're supposed to be working for. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily 
but do it as for the Lord rather than for men. That was Martha's error, right? Luke 10, 40, Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she missed the opportunity to sit at the Lord's feet, which Jesus himself said would have been better. And in fact, he said, it's the one thing necessary. As crucial as work is, it is not the thing most needful. Faith is, worshiping, listening, submissive, earnest faith. Now, it wasn't wrong for Martha to work. The meal did need to be put on the table. Martha's problem was that her work became a distraction from things that were more important. It drew her attention away from the Lord, and that in turn opened her heart to evil resentment. So she complained to Jesus when she ought to have been worshiping him. And in fact, she complained about her sister who was worshiping and listening and properly focused. And work for any of us can be just that kind of distraction. It's a good thing in and of itself. And, and I think I stressed the last time I preached on those first two verses that, that Scripture repeatedly commends diligence and hard work. That's a good thing. For example, listen to this string of Proverbs, Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 12, 27. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is enriched. Proverbs 21, 5. The thoughts of the diligent lead surely to profit, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. In other words, it's saying, if you're too lazy to make careful plans, then you're laying a foundation for failure and poverty. And we could go on with quotes like this from Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is full of it. Let me cite just one more. Proverbs 10, verse 4, poor is he who works with a slack hand, for the hand of the diligent makes rich. That verse, Proverbs 10, intrigues me. In fact, keep a finger here in Psalm 127 and turn with me for a moment to Proverbs 10, because I want you to see this chapter with with your own eyes and understand where this statement fits in Scripture. Proverbs 10, verse 4, which I just read, this is a Solomonic truism. Uh, This is how the ESV translates it. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. In other words, being lazy will make you poor, but hard work will make you rich. The fruit of idle hands is poverty, The fruit of hardworking hands is wealth. All those statements are true, but that's a proverb, not a promise. It's a truism, not an absolute guarantee. It is a general truth that is stated as a common sense maxim. It's not to be regarded as a divine promise that God is obliged to fulfill for every hardworking person. It's like Proverbs 22.6, the famous verse that says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he won't depart from it. That is not, you know, an ironclad guarantee. It's a general truth. It underscores the parent's duty before God. But even well-trained children do sometimes rebel. Solomon himself, in his later years, departed from the way he should have gone. 
And so it's a truism. It's not an ironclad guarantee. And likewise, when Proverbs 10.4 suggests basically that riches are the fruit of hard work, that's not establishing a sacred principle in contradiction to the principle we read in our psalm. It's a plain fact of real life that lots of people work hard and never become wealthy. And nevertheless, the point of Proverbs 10.4 is it's still true. Idleness and sloth are a fast track to poverty. And without hard work, wealth is hard to come by. So the proverb is making an observation about laziness and labor from a human perspective. If you want to be poor, be lazy. If you want to be wealthy, work hard. But then, notice, just down the page, and here's why I had you turn there, Proverbs 10.22 makes clear again where wealth actually comes from. It is the blessing of Yahweh that makes rich. So that despite what verse 4 says about work being the pathway to riches, verse 2 acknowledges that ultimately it is the Lord's blessing that makes you wealthy. It's the main point of the proverb. It's clear, and it eliminates any notion that verse 4 is trying to contradict Psalm 127. And the second half of Proverbs 10.22, I have to mention since I took you there, because it's hard to translate from the Hebrew. The Legacy Standard Bible says this, it is the blessing of Yahweh that makes rich, and he adds no pain with it. That's a literal translation. The ESV and the New King James and the King James versions all say something similar. The NIV kind of paraphrases it this way. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. And I think that's close to what the proverb actually means. In fact, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, I think, nails it. It says, the Lord's blessing enriches and struggle adds nothing to it. So the point is, it's the Lord who gives us wealth, and neither worry nor workaholism can make you any richer than God has sovereignly decreed, which is back to what our psalm says. So in Proverbs 10, if you put verse 4 and verse 22 together, there you have actually once more this twin emphasis on divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Both things are true. God's sovereignty does not nullify human responsibility, and vice versa. Divine sovereignty is actually what establishes human responsibility. Because God is our sovereign, we are responsible to Him. We are accountable to Him. And verse 4 in Proverbs 10 teaches human responsibility. Hard work is a necessary duty. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. All, the, all true blessing ultimately comes from him. But then verse 22 reminds us of that, the sovereignty of God, that if you pretend you have no need of God, if you think you can gain advantages by your own hand, if you, you dream that your own efforts can improve on God's gifts or gain you more prosperity, if you're so deluded as to believe that worry or anxiety or long hours of overtime can add anything of value to God's grace, if you think any of those things, then you don't really understand your need for grace at all. Hard work is a good and necessary duty, but we cannot let it supersede 
or crowd out the higher duties of faith and worship, reliance on God, and gratitude for His grace. If you do your work as unto the Lord, your work should not be a drudgery. And if you truly want to serve the Lord in your work, you must always bear in mind that He is the one who both empowers and rewards your labors. So, He ultimately deserves all the credit for every success, every blessing, and all the fruits of our labors, which again takes us back to Deuteronomy 8.18, you shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is He who is giving you the power to make wealth. We have to plant and we have to water, but it is God who gives the increase. Or Hebrews 3 verse 4, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. In fact, listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. I love this verse. It's where Paul acknowledges the role of diligent labor in the context of God's sovereign grace. And here he's talking about his own sanctification, his usefulness to the Lord as he works. And, and he's, he's sort of trying to balance both his responsibility to be diligent and his obligation to give God the credit for everything good that happens. He writes this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So he acknowledges God's grace in, in making him a faithful apostle. But then he says, but I, uh, he says, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them. I think he's talking about the other apostles. He's the most hardworking. And then he immediately says, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. So he recognizes his need for diligence, but he gives God the credit for everything good that comes from it. And every workman must have that same perspective. Whatever your vocation is, it is just that, a vocation, which means literally it's a calling. It's an opportunity for you to serve the Lord. And that's true no matter what rung of the corporate ladder you are on. Paul even applied this principle to slaves in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the integrity of your heart, as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, serving with good will as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So if your, if your calling, your vocation is legitimate at all, it is work you should see as labor you are doing for the Lord, and your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Or here's another way to say it, and, and this really is the very starting point of the biblical work ethic. All legitimate work is an opportunity for worship if we perform our labor as unto the Lord. And you must not lose sight of that truth, or else your work will ultimately eclipse worship in the order of your priorities. Only one thing is needful, and that's worship. Hard work, by the way, is made inevitable by the curse, the curse against sin. So it's unavoidable, but it is not needful in the way worship is needful. It's not needful, it's inescapable. J. 
Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. And yet, if you do your work as unto the Lord, Scripture says, you will receive back from the Lord whether you are a slave or a free person. That's the proper biblical perspective on work. Don't let your work or your pursuit of prosperity or any project like the building of a house or any of the cares of of this life, don't let any of that take first place in your heart over the Lord himself. Because unless God is in it, your labor is vain. No matter how hard you work, no matter how long you stay at the task, And especially no matter how much anxiety you invest in your project. In fact, we'll return to this issue of anxiety in a minute. But what we have here is a reminder for the workman. And it means don't let your work eclipse your worship. Don't try to take credit for blessings only God can give. And above all, do your work as unto the Lord. Knowing that without the Lord, all your effort and all your tasks are worthless. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord, but all labor that leaves God out is utterly and completely worthless. And so you have, first of all, a lesson for the workman. Now, here's a similar message for the watchman. Second half of verse 1. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Now, the obvious biblical illustration of this truth is in Matthew chapters 27 and 28. Remember, after the body of Jesus was placed in the tomb, Matthew 27, 62, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I'm to rise again. Therefore, order for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead." And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, notice Pilate's command. He says to them, Make it as secure as you know how. And he's speaking there to imperial Roman guards. These are elite soldiers assigned to their task by the governor himself, and they made that tomb as secure as humanly possible. But all of their efforts to keep Jesus' body in the grave were utterly in vain because the whole aim of their enterprise was the antithesis of God's eternal plan. Now, these are not the type of men who were prone to fall asleep on the job. For one thing, These were career soldiers. More than that, these are special forces whose best skill is guard duty. They're members of the Praetorian Guard. Guard is even in their name. They're men trained and qualified to guard Caesar himself. And in order to serve in that capacity, they had to have at least 10 years of exemplary military service. A typical guard unit consisted of 16 soldiers... And they would stand guard overnight in teams of four, one team for each of the four watches of the night, 
And at least four men then were on guard at all times. Each group would take a three-hour stint. And the tomb, it says, was sealed, which means it was fastened shut with an emblem of Caesar. And the penalty for breaking a seal like that would be death. The penalty for any guard who fell asleep on duty would likewise be death. So this is not a casual attempt to guard the tomb of Christ. It it would have been impossible anywhere in the Roman Empire to guard anything small or large any more securely than those soldiers were standing guard, guarding the opening to Jesus' tomb. They went and made the grave secure, Scripture says, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. And this, by the way, is one of the great facts that makes the truth of the resurrection so compelling. This makes it impossible to dismiss the empty tomb as a parlor trick or a fraud or a misunderstanding. The presence of these guards proves the truth of the resurrection. If the Romans and the Sanhedrin had simply handed the body of Christ over to his disciples, then no one except those who actually saw the risen Christ with their own eyes would ever have believed the resurrection. There would have been no reason to doubt the claim of the Sanhedrin in Matthew 28, 13, that his disciples came by night and stole him away while the watchmen were asleep. But with the tomb sealed and guarded by praetorian guards, that claim simply is not plausible. Couldn't happen. Here was a group of professional guards, skilled watchmen, and in spite of the lie that the Sanhedrin paid them to tell, they stayed awake while they were on duty. But they stayed awake in vain, like our psalm says. They couldn't keep Jesus in the tomb. The assignment Pilate gave them was overruled by a sovereign God. So here's the lesson for the watchman. God is more trustworthy than all of your skill and watchfulness. And like the workman, if you're doing your job in the power and confidence of your own flesh without any sense of trust in or dependence on the Lord, what you're doing is useless. It's an absolute waste of your time and energy. And if you're standing guard to try to thwart the work or the will of God especially, you will fail in the attempt. If you're standing guard to try to ward off some evil or enemy, you need God's watchful eye to guarantee your success. That's what the psalm is saying. It's not wrong to have guards. We have great security for us here. But we do that in the context of trust, that God himself is enabling them, and he also is watchful. God himself is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He is our shelter and fortress. He is our only safe refuge, a tower of strength before the enemy. That's Psalm 61.3. And if you're looking for a savior or a defender or a watchman from any other source, your disappointment is guaranteed if you've left God out of it. That's why the doctrine of God's sovereignty is so important, and it's why we stress it all the time. If you doubt or disbelieve God's absolute sovereignty, you're going to be strongly tempted to look for help from another source, or still worse, you will fall into the trap of trusting your own skill and your own resources, and there is no more foolish expectation. And so we've met the workman and the watchman. Here's a third character in verse 2. He's the worrier. 
or to be perfectly accurate, this is not necessarily a distinct character. Both workmen and watchmen are prone to anxiety. In fact, worry is, I think, inevitable for those who constantly lose sleep because they're always at work or always on the watch, especially if they do it without faith in God. How could someone stay at work or stand at watch constantly alone and not be troubled by anxiety? It's inevitable. But I'm going to treat the worrier as a third category because you can be a worrier without being a workman or a watchman. Even slackers and deadbeats worry, and well, they should because trouble is bound to catch up with them eventually. But worry is as much a waste of time as the toil of the godless laborer and the tedium of the unbelieving lookout. Freedom from constant anxiety is the birthright of every true believer. This is one of the great benefits of genuine faith. The last phrase in verse 2, he gives sleep to his beloved. Now, let me remind you, this is a Solomonic psalm. According to the inscription, which I read, Psalm 127 was either written by Solomon or for him. We don't know which, but it obviously has special significance for Solomon because he was the builder of the first temple, and he was the king who stood watch over Israel during the first ever extended reign of peace over the promised land. And the Hebrew word that's translated beloved in verse 2 is actually a form of Solomon's nickname. When he was born, according to 2 Samuel 12, 25, Nathan the prophet named him Jedidiah, which means beloved by God. And the name is derived from the same Hebrew word that we have here in verse 2. He gives sleep to his beloved to rise up early and to go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil is a sheer waste of enemy, energy. rather. Trust the Lord and sleep well. That's one of his gracious gifts to us, sleep. And furthermore, rest is a characteristic and a fruit of faith. To have faith is to rest our hearts in God, to be at ease before him and trust him. There's a passive element in trusting God that is the very essence of faith. Faith is not a work. It's the opposite. It's a, it's a resting in God. Hebrews 4.10, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. That's talking about the rest, the spiritual rest that salvation gives, where we rest from our works, meaning specifically those efforts that we naturally but sinfully try to do to earn favor with God. You don't need that. You don't need artificial righteousness if the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. What you need is simply to follow in his steps and be righteous, but don't put your trust in your own righteousness. Look again at that expression, the bread of painful labors. The ESV translates it, and I read it this way once, the bread of anxious toils. So they get the idea of anxiety in there. In the Legacy Standard Bible and the New American Standard Version, It's the bread of painful labors, and the King James Version says the bread of sorrows. Actually, 
The Hebrew phrase is broad enough to cover the range of all of those meanings, but the context, I think, makes it clear that the idea the psalmist has in mind is an unsettled heart, uh, uh, heavily freighted with disquiet and worry and personal pain and fear of the future. He's talking about a troubled state of anxiety that makes sleep impossible, worry. And all such angst is worthless, the psalmist says. Worry is wasted energy. Jesus, of course, said the very same thing in Luke 12, 25, and 26. Which of you, by worrying, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? Therefore, if you cannot even do a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Worry, you know, is the polar opposite of faith. In other words, it's a form of unbelief. It's a wearying energy drain as well. One of the great gifts God gives us is sleep, rest from our labors, relief from the curse and the cares of life, refreshment for both body and soul. And in fact, the older I get, the more I appreciate the value of sleep. Sadly, the older I get, the harder it is to sleep long, long time because my joints hurt and wake me up. But we need to see and appreciate that sleep is a blessing of God. You see, if you truly understand and embrace the principle of God's sovereignty and the truth of His grace, you should know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Romans 8, 28. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against you will succeed, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the inheritance of the slaves of Yahweh, and their righteousness is from me, declares Yahweh. He's making that promise to the prophet Isaiah, but he applies it to everyone who trusts in him, that that no weapon that's formed against us will succeed. We are secure under his watchful eye. That ought to make it easier to sleep. Who stands guard while we sleep? The answer is easy. God does. Psalm 121. Just a few psalms back. In fact, Psalm 121 is the first, the second psalm, rather, in a series of short psalms that are grouped together for us in the canon. Fifteen in a row of them, all short. This, our psalm is one of them. Psalm 121 says, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will not slumber and will not sleep. So God doesn't sleep, but he gives sleep to those he loves and those who love him. Who promises to make our way prosperous and bless us with good success? Who holds our fortunes in his hands? Again, the answer is obvious. God does. As we said at the beginning, he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And it's the height of folly not to keep our hearts and expectations firmly fixed on our Heavenly Father throughout the workday in the dark night watches, and during those times in between when our minds are prone to the cares and anxieties of life, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. It doesn't mean He feels good towards you. It means He cares for you. He takes care of you. He is guarding you. He is watching you. He's blessing you. All those good things come from His hand. Now, Look at verse 3, and here the psalm, this is where the psalm almost seems to take up a completely different subject. And in fact, the change is so dramatic 
you might wonder if there's any connection at all between the first two verses and the three closing verses. I said that earlier. But notice, verses 3 through 5 are all about children and what a blessing they are. They are, verse 3, an inheritance of Yahweh, a reward. They are, verse 4, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And verse 5, how blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now, a quiver, of course, is that tube-like container that uh, an archer uses to hold his arrows. So a man with lots of children is well-armed. They will not be ashamed when they speak with enemies in the gate. His own children, in other words, become his defenders. They confront his enemies at the gate. And by the way, this verse, I have to comment on this. I won't spend time on it, but this verse is not a mandate to have the largest family you can possibly have. (laughs) Children are a blessing, and a quiver full of them has great benefits, But if you think this is a condemnation of small families, or even worse, if you think childlessness is a a sign of divine disfavor, you're missing the actual point. And there's no need to spend a great deal of time about that. Let me just say, be on guard against people who try to turn verse 5 into some kind of legalistic imperative, or, or use it to as a gauge for judging what God thinks of their neighbors. It's not that at all. And there's no imperative in this verse. It's just talking about the blessing children are. Now, I promise to show you, though, the logical connection between those first two verses and the final three verses. So first, remember the principle that underlies the main point of this psalm, that everything that is truly good in life comes to us by grace from God. All the truly good things in life are blessings to be grateful for. They are not accomplishments that we ourselves can take credit for. And then the classic example of this is a son or a daughter. Behold, children are an inheritance from God. God is the one who made our children, and they are his gifts to us. You can't build a baby with any amount of human skill and worldly material. You can putter around your house with all the resources you have there. You'll never put together a baby. You can't do it. This is a living illustration of verse 1. You, you, if you wanted to find a, an illustration of the point of verse 1, you couldn't find a better one than a little baby. Again, try to construct your own and you won't get anywhere. Pinocchio is dead. But these little ones, made in the likeness of God... That not only the best of all the earthly blessings God gives us, they are also living reminders that He is the one to whom our praise and trust and loyalty and thanksgiving belong. Children are a better heritage and a more lucrative reward than all of the houses, lands, money, jewels, or other material possessions you might accumulate. Children are better than all of that. And it's true that with children comes increased responsibility and multiple motives to worry and more trials and many potential headaches. But on balance, the blessings far outweigh the troubles that come with children, although some of you younger parents might not fully appreciate that until you start to have grandkids. They're great because you don't have to discipline them. You can turn them over to their parents for that. You just have fun with them, and they are a great blessing. The assumption here, of course, is that 
It's talking about children who have been raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and they've been discipled according to the Word of God. These are children who honor their father and mother. The last phrase in the psalm makes clear that it's talking about faithful, responsible, honorable children, because they will not be ashamed when they speak with enemies in the gate. Now, other translations say he will not be put to shame, as if it's describing, describing a quality of the man who fills his quiver with children. But the legacy translation is correct. The plural pronoun they in that verse is a reference to the children themselves who grow up to be respectable and responsible and who therefore are in a position to answer their father's adversaries with authority and valor and honor, even in a place of public conflict. In this case, in the gate, which is both in the place of judgment and also at the opening of the city. So they, they, they sort of put a roadblock in front of the enemies before they even get to their father. The context suggests that they're speaking in defense of the parents, in defense of the family honor and some principle of righteousness. The idea is that they honor their family. They, are, they gratify the hearts of their parents, and they answer the threats and the charges of the enemy. Kylan Dalich, commenting on the Hebrew expression in this verse, say this, unjust judges, malicious accusers, and false witnesses retire shy and faint-hearted before a family so capable of defending itself. The idea is the children group together to defend the family honor. Spurgeon says it this way, Nobody cares to meddle with a man who can gather a clan of brave sons about him. His own sons make his words emphatic by the resolve to carry out their father's wishes. This is the blessing of Abraham, the old covenant benediction. He quotes from Scripture, Thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And Spurgeon says it's a promise that applies to all the beloved of the Lord in some sense or another. Faithful children like that are of far greater value than success in any construction project. They bring a kind of security that no military guard could ever provide, and they are a greater tonic for anxiety than any business plan or retirement account. But the point is not that we should trust our children or look to them for our security. That would contradict the psalm. It's saying that children are a token of the Lord's care for us. They're merely instruments through which the Lord mediates His blessings. And therefore, the lesson is the same. It is God in whom we should trust. And that's the whole lesson of the psalm. God is the one whom we should depend on for success in everything we do. True and lasting success simply isn't possible apart from divine grace. So everything depends on God's blessing. We should acknowledge that and and seek to glorify Him first of all, or else, Scripture says, our own labor will be in vain. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own, which is a good lesson to bear in mind as we enter a new year. And by the way, it's uncanny, isn't it? how closely Jesus' Sermon on the Mount echoes the lesson of this psalm, which shouldn't surprise us because 
the theme of this psalm is the same truth that constitutes the very heart of the gospel message. Think about it. If the work you do in an earthly building project is worthless apart from God's blessing, how much more worthless are your efforts to earn His favor by your own good works? Religious ritual or legalistic self-righteousness or whatever it is you use to, to try to earn God's favor, it's all worthless. You cannot be successful in any endeavor if you're trusting your own work. That's the very lesson of this psalm. How much can you earn God's how much less can you earn God's favor by trusting in your own goodness? We're sinners, and that means all of our works are corrupt and worthless by the very nature of who we are. And scripture says that in our natural state we're enemies of God. Romans 7 verses Romans 8 verses 7 and 8. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. We need a Savior, and that's why Christ came to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. If you're not trusting Christ for salvation, all your religion is vain. All your supposed goodness is merely wicked self-righteousness. Your good works are futile. But Christ's works were perfect. He is the sinless, unblemished Lamb of God. He not only paid the price of sin in full, He meticulously fulfilled all of the demands of perfect righteousness. His work was not in vain. And for those who bow to Him as Lord and trust Him as Savior, His death counts as payment for their sins, and His righteousness is imputed to them. That's the gospel message. It starts with a recognition of the truth of this psalm, that everything we do in pursuit of our own agenda or our own glory or our own reward, everything we do like that is utterly worthless, vain, defiled by sin, and therefore devoid of any eternal value. But the gospel culminates in a promise and an invitation so lavish and so abundant that it almost seems too good to be true. Here it is from Isaiah, Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That is the gospel, according to Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 6. And that same promise is repeated in the closing verses of the New Testament, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to receive the water of life, do it without cost. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. But Jesus told his disciples that he is building an eternal house for us. John 14, verses 2 and 3, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That, that is where all of our trust and our hopes 
need to be focused. Let's pray. Lord, we are prone to a deluded sense of self-confidence and a a sinful attitude of self-sufficiency. We confess that. May we embrace the truth of this psalm. May we confess our need and trust in you and you alone as the giver of every good gift and every perfect gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.